0: Hello everybody, yes, we're back. The Very Lutheran Project is back with a very good and fresh start here. For anybody that listens to, say, the Godcast, or anybody that's a part of the Lutheran Soldiers for Christ, for anybody that's just listening, welcome back here to The Very Lutheran Project. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you opened up with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Yes, third book of your Bible. It's the book that most people kind of skip over thinking, well, this is mostly just uh, ceremonial, right? Except this is going to cut at the heart of so many problems in society today. Just, oh my goodness, I'm tripping over my words just thinking about this. This is off the cuff. Leviticus 19. Let's go ahead and start here in verse 15. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is excruciatingly important for our topic today, which is the true voice of the messages we're receiving in a big Ava, big Christianity, big Lutheranism. When we think of the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? We can go back to our catechism and say, well, yes, I fear, love, and trust my God so much that I will love my neighbor because my God loves him. This is true but we forget oftentimes in our catechesis that we are supposed to turn to the scriptures to see what a command means and what is that special word there in verse 17 i'm on the nrsv here it was the bible that was closest to me it said you shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin you shall not reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself now okay you shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. It also says in verse 16, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Are you hearing some of these words here? Your kin. Your neighbor. Your people. So this second greatest commandment in all of Holy Scripture, which our Lord Jesus says, this is the second most important, second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We understand it to mean, I love me. The expectation is that I should love me. And that's part of the commandment, because if you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor, right? So, okay, it's assumed that I love myself. I look out for my own best interests. And my neighbor... The ones closest to me, I should be looking out for them too. But we forget the hierarchy. We forget the hierarchy of this as presented in the Ten Commandments. Why is the fourth commandment, you shall honor your father and your mother? Why? It's pretty easy because your father and your mother are your first neighbors. And for most of your uh, beginning life, your growing up years, your formative years, they are your closest neighbors. And you're supposed to, of course, love your grandparents and everybody else in your family as well. And the commandment has a mirror image as well, because what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to Uh, be good parents. We don't want to introduce the temptation to sin for our children, right? But then we hear our Lord Jesus, he elaborates later on with a parable of the Good Samaritan, that, okay, yes, you are supposed to love those closest to you. In Leviticus chapter uh, 19 here, it tells us uh, that extends to your kin, not just, your, not just your immediate family, your kin, your, your ethnicity, your tribe, your clan. But also to your enemy. Our Lord Jesus says to love your enemy as well. Now in the hierarchy of all of this, again, because I am supposed to love my father and my mother and honor them in a way that I do not do for other people, your average Joe on the street. I am commanded to love my wife, my now closest neighbor, as Christ loves the church. And nobody else has afforded that privilege. (laughs) Nobody else has the command of God saying that I have to love them as Christ loves his church, do they? So there is a hierarchy, but Jesus says, don't forget, your enemy belongs to that hierarchy too. So, It is okay to have agape love for them. With that said, let's read some things online here in their real voice. And what do I mean by this? The voice of the actual originator of these sayings, these things I'm seeing online. It'll make a little bit more sense. I'm sorry for the mouse clickings. I'm sorry for the. Uh, little noises here and there. But this is from Calvin University. Now I'm bringing up Calvin University because it's the first thing that came up that was pertinent to this. Uh, Calvin University on their education, it says, uh, Agents of Renewal in their About page. Calvin University equips students to think deeply, to act justly, to live wholeheartedly as Christ's agents of renewal in the world renewal. Okay. So maybe they're saying we're, we're equipping our students here at Calvin University to, to be all about the transforming work of the gospel. Does that sound accurate to us here? Does this sound maybe what they're getting at? I sure hope so. But let's take a look instead at their frequently asked questions. And let's read it with the, what I would like to think is uh, the original voice. Who actually wrote this? Who actually wrote this article here? So, frequently asked questions in their diversity and inclusion
1: tab. There is so much to learn about Calvin University's diversity and inclusion initiatives. Some of the more frequently asked questions are answered here. If you have more questions about Calvin's diversity and inclusion initiatives, or if you have a suggestion to improve our diversity and inclusion efforts, please contact us at diversity at calvin.edu. Oh, what was that voice?
0: Well, that voice... What I'm going to call the lich voice. This is some d and lich mage, disgusting, evil creature. That's probably the real source, some demonic source of a lot of these things that you see. These diversity and inclusion measures. As well as a lot of doctrinal positions as well. So a question here on this uh, page says... Are the university's efforts to strengthen diversity and inclusion new?
1: No. The university has been intentionally addressing diversity and inclusion since 1985. More recently, in 2014, through the leadership of the president, provost, and others on the university's senior leadership team, the university has recommitted to strengthening its diversity and inclusion efforts. These efforts are articulated in the Strategic Plan. Calvin 2019 The strategic plan theme, Strengthen Diversity and Inclusion Efforts, provides a tactical framework that the Calvin community can use to achieve the excellence derived from full engagement with diversity.
0: Now, for those of us who haven't grown up with black metal and death metal music, with a growly and uh, little toad like voices, At the end it says a tactical framework that the Calvin community can use to achieve the excellence derived from full engagement with diversity well let's take a look here Uh, what's the strategic plan oh they took it down okay they also took down the page on strengthening diversity and inclusion efforts hmm well good thing there's a little bit more in this FAQ given that maybe what they took down didn't sound right didn't really uh, didn't really jive well with what people uh, are, are thinking about. So another question: Why does Calvin use the term anti-racism, and what is meant by it?
1: Answer: In 1999, the Christian Reformed Church in North America took steps to become identified as an anti-racist organization. The university, as well as churches within the denomination, was encouraged to incorporate an anti-racist lens into its work and policies. In 2004, the Calvin University Board of Trustees approved the From Every Nation document, which has as three themes, multicultural citizenship, anti-racism and accountability, and reconciliation and restoration
0: hmm anti-racism and accountability accountability what do you mean what do we mean by that well if you click on their page here for uh from every nation thing there's a youtube link i'm not going to watch that but from every nation the revised comprehensive plan for racial justice reconciliation and cross-cultural engagement at calvin university First adopted in 2003 by the faculty and in 2004 by the Board of Trustees of Calvin University, this document articulates a vision as well as goals and strategies for transforming Calvin into an institution that is always vigilant in recognizing racism, always conscientious in promoting reconciliation, and always active in the work of restoring a healthy multicultural community. Hmm. Does this... Forgive me if I'm wrong here, but last time I checked, and I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a Lutheran, but last time I checked, Calvinists affirm sola scriptura. Is there anywhere in the Bible that says that we must be active in the work, quote, of restoring a healthy multicultural community? Is that a biblical priority? Well, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to what the Bible says here. But uh, the document addresses five critical areas, personnel, students, curriculum, and instruction, partners, and constituencies, and campus environment. The ultimate goal of FEN is to work towards a multicultural kingdom of God, like the one described in Revelation 7-9. Uh, quote, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Oh, so we have a little bit of a post-millennial view here. Let's let's bring heaven to earth. Let's let's make heaven real in the material sense. You know, Jesus says my kingdom is not of this earth. So it probably doesn't work the same way, but, but darn it, we can do it, can't we? So the FEN theme says three broad themes shape the goals and strategies articulated within the document. These themes work simultaneously rather than sequentially. Multicultural citizenship, expand cross-cultural experiences, cultivate intercultural sensitivities to anti-racism and accountability, uh, continuing effort to identify the sin of racism and its effects. Make structural changes that will promote greater accountability and enable us to escape and avoid traps of institutional racism. Wait a second. Um, pardon me. We just read from Leviticus saying you shouldn't be slandering your kin. You should be judging them fairly. But and that, that's for your kin first, right? At least that's what Leviticus is saying. I mean, we know that uh, we're not even talking about the broad theology of kinism in a lot of the uh, more fringe reformed movements. Never got its fair day in theological courts, so to speak. But it seems to me that the direct commandment of Scripture to the Israelites, and this is the law of God, this is his eternal will for his people, is to say, hey, your kin... Here on Earth. Coramundo, facing the Earth. Don't go around slandering them. In fact, uh, you shouldn't be partial to the poor. You shouldn't be partial even to the oppressed here. We work for God's, you know, priorities here. We want fairness. We want uh, meritocracy. Oh, wait, sorry, I said the word that uh, Robin D'Angelo says is a white supremacist value. Whoops, meritocracy? What's that? But, um... So is that is that a biblical kind of priority here? Does the Bible use the word racism? Is there any chapter and verse that says this racism, whatever that term means, is a sin? Would would the people writing this say that what Moses wrote in Leviticus, would they say that that was a sin? To say to... to be good to your kin to not slander them? Uh, well, I don't know. But I do know their other priority here in point three reconciliation and restoration. Develop a positive vision of shalom. Model shalom in our community. Oh my goodness. Shalom, huh? So that's their themes, multicultural citizenship, anti-racism and accountability, reconciliation and restoration. And they have goals to uh, develop a more racially and culturally diverse and welcoming campus. Instruction will reflect significant sensitivity to racial and cultural diversity. Curriculum will introduce students to global perspectives and impart a commitment to counter racism and embody reconciliation. Programming will celebrate international commitments and reflect the diversity present in the student body. All constituencies that support the university will understand and embrace Calvin's commitment to racial justice and reconciliation. The physical campus will reflect, respect, and invite a diverse campus community. The university will work toward a multicultural campus, not simply as a high-minded ideal, but as if it is a dictate of biblical justice. Multiculturalism as a dictate of biblical justice. Does the Bible say that? Is there any commandment to make uh, churches, universities, or any secular institution a multicultural one? Oh well. Oh, the last one here. The university will regularly evaluate the intercultural sensitivity and cross-cultural experiences of the campus. Well, that's that's very interesting, isn't it? So, let's go back here to the FAQ, before we, before we dive into maybe what the Bible actually has to say about all of this. But regarding anti-racism, why does Calvin use the term anti-racism and what is meant by it? Let's keep reading.
1: Anti-racism may at first sound negative, but it can be a useful and indeed a positive term. It alludes us to the fact that progress towards the ultimate end, a genuinely multicultural Christian community, (laughs) hairball in my throat, requires more than eloquent rhetoric and good intentions. It requires intentionally combating deeply ingrained impediments to interracial justice, reconciliation, and partnership. The use of anti-racist terminology is not a mere matter of putting on the rhetorical berets and bandoliers of political correctness.
0: Not merely berets and bandoliers. I wonder where berets come from, huh?
1: It arises out of a sober recognition of what Abraham Kuyper called the antithesis, the radical gap between the kingdom of God and the powers of this world. Anti-racism. Simply defined is the collective of beliefs, actions, movements, and policies adopted or developed to oppose racism. Anti-racism tends to promote the view that racism is pernicious and socially pervasive, and changes in institutional and social life are required to eliminate it in general. Anti-racism is intended to promote an Italian egalitarian society in which people do not face discrimination on the basis of their race.
0: <clears throat> Again, for those of us not accustomed to uh, black metal vocals here, it says, In general, anti-racism is intended to promote an egalitarian society in which people do not face discrimination on the basis of their race. Well, is that really what anti-racism means these days? Well, let's see if they're being in good faith here. Let's ask the next, next question here on their FAQ. What does diversity mean at Calvin University?
1: In the answer, Calvin University has adopted the term diversity to describe the kind of community we hope to build and maintain on our campus. The university is committed to welcoming community members from various races, ethnicities, cultures, genders and abilities. Promoting a diverse and inclusive environment is first and foremost a priority that is pursued at Calvin University as a grateful and faithful response to following the scriptures and effectively preparing students to not just survive but thrive and serve in today's multicultural world diversity is not a problem to be solved it is an expression of God's creative genius however the universities does more than simply celebrate the rich diversity of God's people The university works to create an institutional environment that links diversity and academic excellence by engaging diversity for the benefit of all within the Calvin community, and where diversity is tied to Calvin's reputation for excellence.
0: Oh. So again, quote, Diversity is not a problem to be solved. It is an expression of God's creative genius. However, the university does more than simply celebrate the rich diversity of God's people. The university works to create an institutional environment that links diversity and academic excellence by engaging diversity for the benefit of all within the Calvin community and where diversity is tied to Calvin's reputation for excellence. So diversity and excellence are tied at the hip. I wonder what the Bible would say about that. Now, indeed, we even as a Lutheran, anybody that's sola scriptura would say, yes, God created all people of all races and ethnicities. He created them male and female and saw that it was very good. Mehol, it says in the Hebrew. So we can't deny that. But diversity itself in one institution as excellence—is that really what God intended? Now, maybe, maybe we got them wrong. Maybe it's not. Uh, maybe before we jump into the scriptures here, maybe this isn't um, just about uh, about race, right? Maybe this isn't them just saying, you know, what God created, we're going we're to mash it all together in a little zoo here and have everybody of every race just mingle because that equals excellence in our minds for some reason. So one of the questions here in this FAQ is, is Calvin's focus on diversity and inclusion just about race? Remember, this is a Christian university. At least it seems to be. It says so. But is Calvin's focus on diversity and inclusion
1: just about race? No. Calvin's diversity and inclusion efforts include race, but also address other topics. The university offers a variety of lectures, courses, and professional development opportunities on topics related to a variety of diversity-related subjects. (coughs) including gender equity, social class, global concerns, world religions, differing abilities, and sexual orientation. With regards to sexual orientation, Calvin University seeks to be a community where lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons are created with respect Justice, grace, and understanding in the spirit of Christ. (coughs) Extra hairball in my throat. Our institutional approach is framed by the position of the Christian Reformed Church in regards to same-sex sexual behavior. And the university understands Christian marriage to be a covenant between a man and a woman. We recognize the complexity of current issues around homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and gender identity. The university desires to engage these conversations with courage, humility, prayerfulness, and convicted civility. Read more in the LGBT Students and Homosexuality FAQ. Oh
0: goodness. I think I'm seeing kind of a kind of a disconnect here. What do you think, guys? Between what the scriptures say and what calvin.edu is saying about diversity and inclusion, cuz now they're saying the created world and all of the races and everything are God's creation, and so we should we should put them all together in one place because that's that's just creative genius, that's celebrating what heaven is going to look like, maybe that's a stretch. I could I could see somebody arguing for that, scripturally, maybe. I could see them maybe saying, well yeah, Leviticus 19 is true regarding how one treats their own kin, but we do really want to emphasize the fact that, well, The Christian church is Israel now, and that means that the Christian church is not composed of just the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, just the Hebrews. Okay, I can see that, possibly. We could have that conversation, but now, respect, justice, grace, and understanding for LGBTQIA persons. And saying this in spite of, apparently, the official position of the Christian Reformed Church regarding same-sex sexual behavior, which says that um, uh, Christian marriage to, is a covenant between a man and a woman. But, mm, It seems a little bit like they want to have their cake and eat it, too. That God created all these people in a certain way, and they're now including transgender people who disagree with the way God made them. Well, that, hmm, maybe maybe the crux of it is how quote-unquote norm, normal people, right, quote-unquote normal meaning, you know, cis-heteronormative Caucasian males might see this. And, and maybe, maybe some graces given to them regarding, like, listen, this is something we want to do in a positive way. Uh, but you don't have to be involved. Maybe this is audiophora in their mind. Neither harmful nor helpful. Maybe they're, maybe they're about cooperation in a positive sense. That could be healthy, right? So we move on to the next question. I'm not a minority, so why should I be involved in diversity and inclusion efforts? To which Calvin.edu says...
1: All members of the Calvin community are urged to engage in practices that will strengthen Calvin's diversity and inclusion efforts. Research has shown that people from majority cultures, not just underrepresented people, benefit from a diverse work setting, a diverse learning environment, and a curriculum which is infused with diversity-related content. The university has made a commitment to be an institution that is academically and inclusively excellent. We will be successful in our efforts, and we must be successful only if everyone in the Calvin community commits themselves to this effort. Each of us, in our work environments, in our public interactions, and in our personal relationships must aspire to the goals we have set for ourselves. Our integrity as well as our success as an institution of higher education demands nothing less.
0: To read more on the benefits of diversity in higher education, see Darrell G. Smith et al. Diversity Works, the emerging picture of how students benefit. Well, it doesn't sound like you really have the option to say no, does it, guys? If you join calvin.edu. Oh no, this university says we will be successful in our efforts, and we must be successful only if everyone in the Calvin community commits themselves to this effort. (laughs) We're only going to be successful if you join this effort for diversity. I can imagine the blood vessel in their head swelling as they do this. You're not really given an option to, to say no to it. But besides, after all, they, they do say um, that there are benefits for you. you. benefit from a diverse work setting, a diverse learning environment in the curriculum, which is infused with diversity-related content. So um, you're going to benefit if you do this. But by the way, you have to do this. Hmm. Okay. It sounds to me like this is uh, this is turning something that it that maybe I said out of charity. Maybe this could be just offer. Like this is something we want to push because we want to celebrate how God created the universe. But now they're they're including people that don't like how God made them. They don't like what their body is meant to do in a functional sense, and they they're saying now that this is more or less required we will be successful we will but by the way only if you join in so okay we're worried we're worried now because this is this is taking majoring in the minors and speculative minors at that again we're going to cover what the scriptures say about all this but this is majoring in the minors in a really big way don't you think Kind of turning them into into the law of God here. Kind of saying that this stuff is so required. So absolutely required. This has to happen, you guys. There is no other option. We are going to be an excellent group of diversity in people. We are going to exert this influence or else. At least that's the, that's the scary thing. But maybe, just maybe... Just maybe. The way that they go about this is in a nice and peaceful way that isn't going to harm anybody. So let's go to the next question. question is, how will the university promote greater inclusion? You say this is what you're going to do and you say this is a huge priority, right? Well, how are you going to do it? Let's hear their answer.
1: THE UNIVERSITY'S CULTURE REFLECTS OUR BROADER NATIONAL AND INTERNATIONAL CULTURES. THE INTEGRATION OF MULTIPLE CULTURES AT TIMES IS MARKED BY THE UNINTENTIONAL DIVISION OF PEOPLE INTO DOMINANT AND SUBORDINATE GROUPS. AS SUCH, WE MUST PAY PARTICULAR ATTENTION TO THE DIFFERENCES THAT HAVE THE MOST POWERFUL ADVERSE EFFECTS ON PEOPLE'S LIVES. Those differences manifest themselves in our daily interactions, as well as in our widespread institutional practices and policies, and can make Calvin more challenging and difficult for some. Not all differences lead to the subordination of people and cultures, but to the extent that they do, we must find ways to overcome dominant subordinate divisions in the service of greater inclusion, respect, and recognition throughout the institution this inevitably involves change in institutional policies and group practices curricular innovation a shift in cli- campus climate and changes in individual behavior it also requires strong leadership and broadly shared responsibility in pursuing these diversity initiatives as a university we are committed to working to create opportunities for all who study and work here To sustain a climate of civility and mutual respect. To to promote the free and open exchange of ideas, even unpopular ones, in the context of an academic learning community. To make our governance structures and decision-making processes more inclusive. To seek justice and reconciliation according to the biblical version of Shalom and to enhance the curriculum and educational programming in alignment with our <coughs> reformed Christian mission with respect to those differences that have occasion to the most significant injustices. Wow. Well, now I think we hit at
0: something. They said, uh, in plain English this time, not Ease, woke lich language here, the university's culture refl- reflects our broad national and international cultures. So not the home culture. Not, not where you are. Not the culture of the people there. Nobody has to submit to that or, you know, kind of do the whole when in Rome bit. No, it says the integration of multiple cultures at times is marked by the unintentional divisions of people into dominant and subordinate groups. Now, does that remind us of anything? Does that maybe remind us of things like oppressed and oppressor? It does charitably say unintentional, but the the result is the same. Division and quote-unquote adverse effects on people's lives is something that Calvin University wants to address here. How do they want to address it? With institutional policies and group practices, curricular innovation, a shift in campus climate, and changes in individual behavior. So to address these naturally occurring differences between peoples of all sorts of different cultures, people coming into Calvin from all over the world, I guess, the, the answer to that is to change everything, make it go topsy-turvy, to, to force individuals To make restitution for something that they said is unintentional. Hmm. That's no good, is it? That sounds a little bit like when we read here, turning back to Leviticus 19. What did Moses write? He said, You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Well, It seems to me like their policy here of taking those they believe to be poor or um, subordinate or oppressed and give such preference to them that they're willing to turn everything topsy-turvy to satisfy and pacify this group and to lead them to excellence, changing everything on account of them. It sounds a little unbiblical, doesn't it? I got a feeling, guys, that they don't really have the Bible in mind with what they're talking about. In fact, it sounds a little bit more like we're getting Robin D'Angelo instead of Holy Scripture. So, is this just Calvin? Has anybody listening here been to college and gotten the same kind of treatment, the same kind of worldview... I'd love to hear from you. Email me at very underscore lutheran at tutonota.com. I would love to hear. Did you also have that? Because I think I can name another uh, seminary, Christian university, that's doing the same thing. The same kind of bit here. From csl.edu. Concordia, St. Louis, a Missouri Synod group here. The Rest and the West. What the West can learn from Global South Christianity. This was a symposium on May 4th and 5th, 2021. And I hate to do the voice again, but what's the description here of this symposium?
1: The seminary's annual multi-ethnic symposium brings together missional leaders, including pastors, congregational leaders, theologians, and others from across the Lutheran Church, Missouri, Synod, and beyond, to explore what it will take to become a truly multi-ethnic church that embodies a more free Catholic universal global identity, especially in the United States. The 2021 Multi-Ethnic Symposium will address what the Global South can contribute to our thinking about practices such as preaching and teaching, worship and the arts, and evangelism and social engagement. (laughs) Factors like unprecedented global migration and increasing birth rates have made the documented growth of global south christianity not only a dissident reality there, but also a present-day reality in the United States. What can the church in the modern west, preoccupied with the rise of cultural realities such as secularism and nihilism learn from the church in the global south, the symposium will gather a group of voices, including prominent scholars and practitioners from the global south, to reflect on these questions. Registration fee is $35.
0: Registration deadline April 19th, 2021. Well, well then, so from the LCMS here, a multi ethnic symposium that says that it is a priority, apparently, and a goal. What it will take to become a truly multi-ethnic church that embodies more fully a Catholic, universal, global identity, especially in the United States. <laughs> Excuse me? These are Lutherans doing this too. So let's, let's turn to scripture. Let's turn to what the Bible says about all of this. Let's go to the book of Genesis. So there's a a particular viewpoint we're going to talk about here. But let's go to Genesis chapter 11, first book of Holy Scripture here, 11th chapter. And let's just go ahead and read starting in the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look there, one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth know, the word for Babel there, that means confusion in the Hebrew, or to confuse, Babal or Babal. So, God says that indeed there is a kind of very special, prideful power in this kind of secular unity, isn't there? God admits it. We can't deny that it's true because even our Lord says. Yeah, boy, there's going to be a lot of stuff that they're capable of if they do this. But I don't want them to. So he separates the people. Separates them to their new lands, to, with new languages. Separates them, hopefully, according to families. And thus we have a Coram Mundo, facing the world, distinction. Now, Coram Deo, facing God. There was absolutely a sense where there is no distinction. There once was with the nation of Israel being the nation which was supposed to show the light of the gospel to the world. But we know that Coram Deo, this distinction with there being neither Jew nor Greek, as Galatians 3.28 says, Coram Deo, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Anybody who is with Christ, united to him in their baptism is united to Christ, and thus united to all other believers in the world, regardless of how they look or whatever their national origin. But that is Coram Deo. Verified at Pentecost with the tongues of fire, speaking with everybody understanding them so they could hear the gospel. And then all these people hearing that, some of them stayed in Jerusalem and others maybe went back home. But the gospel was the point of the unity. Between peoples. So, the question I want to ask everybody listening is Is it healthy to demand Babel be rebuilt? Is it healthy or good to demand that Babel be rebuilt in miniature, as uh, Calvin University seems to think? And is it healthful then to take something God separated and to say that that separation is the response or a response to evil, to sin, to the supposed sin of racism here. That that's the only reason for these divisions. I don't think the Bible says that. In fact, I'm hearing kind of the opposite messaging here. But in addition to that, let's let's call this doctrine babelism The pining for the good old days of Babel when everybody was so united and so multicultural and multi-ethnic that, well, just about anything could be accomplished, you see. Mind you, this is directly after the flood. When God destroyed all of humanity, it seems to me that maybe they were trying to make a tower that could survive a second flood as though they did not believe what God had promised when he had made a covenant, with his war bow in the sky saying, I will not flood the earth again. It seems to me, at least just reading what the Bible says, that earthly distinctions are here for a reason, even though they are not present regarding Coram Deo, facing God. So, Babylonism... It's probably pretty unhealthy, isn't it? Taking God's decision, taking what God did, and rebelling against it. Now that's not to say that a diverse church is sinful by virtue of existing. Or that a diverse institution, if done organically, is there because of some sort of sin. I don't want to go to the opposite extreme here. Because, after all, if trying to force diversity, trying to rebel against the the Coram Mundo, facing the earth distinction that God has made, if rebelling against that is a sin, how much more of a sin would it be to say that the church, whom the Holy Spirit gathers, is there in a sinful way, if the Holy Spirit indeed has gathered them? After all, we live in a diverse society here in America. You like it or not, that's how it is. If there's a black family in your church and, and you're white or uh, perhaps Pacific Islander, right? And you you're in church and there's that black family across in the other aisle in the pews. God brought you to church. Who are you to say that he did not bring this black family? The Holy Spirit gathers his church together. So let us not say that a church looks bad or looks wrong when it's gathered, if it looks a certain way that we don't like. But heaven forbid we should then follow in the footsteps of these people who are trying so hard to destroy the distinction between the heavenly and the earthly. After all, when it comes to gender issues... St. Paul says that there is neither male nor female in Christ in Galatians chapter 3, yet this same St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, for wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, even up to the point of dying for her. So St. Paul recognizes a distinction between heavenly and earthly distinctions, that in heaven these distinctions aren't really there. There's distinctions perhaps in rewards and in recognitions there's obviously a distinction between who's going to heaven and who's going to hell but it's not the same as the earth where there is well some different rules there is it the church's responsibility to force a congregation to look like the demographic makeup of heaven i would say absolutely not and i believe that these universities here are sinning when they do this. Congregations, even more so, are sinning when they claim that the Holy Scriptures demand excellence through diversity. Because it seems like God isn't exactly a fan of excellence through diversity, through this uh, forced unification of mankind. I would say that's the real voice. Coming through in these articles. And it's something that is in just about every single denomination right now. We saw a Calvinist voice. We saw a Lutheran voice saying these things. But it's all the same voice. Which says, God said one thing, but I say another. God says this is how the world is, but I say this is how it will be. It's a voice that is devilish at worst. And undead at best. Bringing up something that God separated. An idea that had been dead since Babel was scattered. And bringing it back to some hollow form of life. A lich, as it were. A zombie. A zombie ideology that demands we go back to those good old days of Babel. And thus try to find a way... To reach the heavens with our powers. I think instead we should with humility accept how God gathers his church together, and we should allow for a hierarchy of loving one's neighbors. After all, again, the fourth commandment: you shall love, you shall honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land you are going in to possess. It sounds to me like that commandment tells me to to love my parents more than I love your average Joe Schmo neighbor walking down the street. And I should love my wife more than I love my friend. And I should love my kin here, it does say here, you shall not render an unjust judgment. Okay, that, that applies to everybody. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Okay, with justice you shall judge your neighbor. All right. So we, we, we maintain partiality and merit. We maintain fairness for all people. But it says you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. It says you shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. So, if the commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, I believe that these diversity and inclusion ideas here are not exactly loving our neighbors as ourselves. At least, not in the sense of the closest to the furthest. And now, our Lord Jesus tells us also to love our enemies, but it seems like Jesus would not tell you to love your enemy more than you love your spouse as Christ loves the church. He would not not say, love your enemy or even your distant neighbor from across the world the same way or more than you honor and love your father and mother. Does Scripture really say you should love your enemies more than you love your family or your people? seems to me like the babblist, the people out here holding to this kind of babbleism, are, they got things a little topsy-turvy and they're willing to turn everything topsy-turvy to get there. For the Very Lutheran Project, I have been, well, yours truly. Our Lord Jesus bless you and keep you in your walk with him. Amen.